Good evening. My name is Steve Pischke. I'm the head of the economics department. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this year's BP lecture. And I'm very glad to welcome John van Rienen, who is the uh, BP, BP professor at the LSE this year. The BP professorship is a visiting position, a distinguished visiting position that uh, we fill most years, and uh, one of the highlights of the year is the annual lecture. We're very glad um, to have John. John is no stranger to these shores. Um, he's actually been a professor in the economics department for 12 years and director of the Center for Economic Performance here, but then he left us to take a professorship at MIT, and we're very glad he's come back and we actually managed to convince him to stay here and he will be the Ronald Coast Chair in Economics um, from next year. So John is an applied economist with a lot of uh, research focused on productivity. Where does productivity growth come from? Um, how can we understand it? What can we do to enhance productivity growth? Um, maybe some of his most influential work has been around um, creating tools to measure the management practices of firms and then relate that to firm performance and to the performance of the various countries these firms are in that's been um, a large-scale, long-running project he's run in conjunction with, uh, with McKinsey and many colleagues um, here. John's always been very involved, not just in academic research, but in outreach and policy-making and trying to take the ideas that we develop and uh, apply them in the real world, helping to make the world a better place. So today, John's going to talk to us about the future of growth and jobs. What does AI and robots mean for productivity growth and for the labor market? Can't think of any better to, uh, anybody better to do this. Um, please welcome John van Rienen. And John will talk for about an hour, and then we'll go to some questions and answers. Thanks very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be back at, uh, at LSE again, and thanks very much for inviting me to, uh, to give the lecture. Um, you know, the, the thing I'm going to talk about tonight, the impact of technology on what's happening to productivity and the labor market, is, is one of the things which has fascinated me all my life. It's one of the things that um, resonates, I think, outside this room. People talk about it all the time. Uh, in, the, uh, in the media and in the general public. So I'm going to try and talk a bit with some ideas on that and draw on some of my work and other people's work to try and shed some light on these questions. But first of all, I want to kind of motivate one of the reasons why people are kind of very worried about uh, the impact of technology. And uh, it comes from, I think, one of the most important graphs, especially if you're, you know, 
uh, in, in the UK to think of, and it's, uh, it's what's happened to kind of real wages, and this draws on some work that Steve Machen and Rui Costa have kindly helped me put together. So this is a, a picture of UK real average wages, so wages adjusted for uh, inflation <laughs> since 1980. Uh, and you can see that, you know, prior to the kind of Great Recession in the UK, there was a steady growth of real wages, as there has been for uh, most of the last uh, couple of hundred years. Uh, but then after the global financial crisis, there was this very steep drop of real wages. And today, real wages still haven't recovered to where they were in uh, 2008. So this, is a, this period of decline of, of uh, real wages is something which uh, is very unusual. In fact, if you look over the, the kind of span of UK history, you have to go back a long way before you see such a uh, bad position. So, you know, this is, uh, I'll put you a picture up from the Resolution Foundation. Um, sorry, I'll move this chair so it's space here. A bit of space to wander around, I think it's important. Uh, so this is a kind of, there's a little bit of projection here. Uh, because, you know, obviously we don't know what's going to happen in the next two years, but on current trends, it looks like, you know, real wages in the 2010s are going to be basically uh, negative or slight zero. And, you know, even in the Great Recession in the 20s and 30s, real wages were doing better than they are now. You have to go back to the end of the 19th century, even the 18th century, before you see such a, such a bad picture of what's happening to real wages. So this kind of um, you know, really bad position in the labor market is what makes people very worried about what's happening. And uh, many people have said, well, is this due to you know, what's happening to technology? So you know, in, in the long run, as an economist, the thing which really drives um, wage growth and living standard growth is productivity growth. It's not so much the, you know, the number of people, the the amount of capital, it's really what you do with those people and you do with those, that capital. So if we look at productivity growth, the simple measure of productivity growth is the output per worker. If you look at what's happened to that over the kind of shorter period from 1980, you can see that you know, just um, as has happened over a long period of time, productivity growth has kind, of, uh, has kind of continued. And again, when we hit the Great Recession, it kind of fell. And since the Great Recession, the, the kind of trend productivity growth has been much slower than it was in the period prior to the Great Recession. There's that big fall of productivity, which you know, is mirrored in the fall of real wages. And again, productivity is barely caught up to where it was before the Great Recession. So this, again, is a very long period, over a decade, of very lackluster productivity growth. And it's the kind of flip side of what's been happening to, to real wages. You can't really get sustained increases of, of real wages unless you get sustained increases of productivity growth, uh, increasing the pie that workers can share in that pie. So that's the kind of motivation for you know, worrying about what's happened and thinking about what's happened. And I'll come back to you know, whether, we, whether technology has something to do with that. So my argument is going to be, and this is in the argument in a nutshell, is that you know, there appears on the, on the, on the, on the face of it that we're in a major technology wave. You know, revolutions in artificial intelligence and robotics. You know, you know, I, I've, you know, I, as Steve said, I spent the last few years in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Last week I was in Stanford working with uh, you know, my co-author, Nick Bloom. You know, and you walk around the corridors of MIT or Silicon Valley, there seems to be this explosion of new technologies. But you know, what I showed you in the UK picture, I'm going to show you some evidence from other countries like the United States, is productivity growth has remained very disappointing. And I'm going to argue that looking back over the history of technology, the key to effectively exploiting the opportunities of new technology really is about management practices. 
both at the kind of uh, level of the, the organization, the, of, of the firm, but also more broadly uh, in, the, in the country as a whole. And, you know, we shouldn't take for, for granted that technologies are going to translate through to wage growth or to productivity growth unless we have a good set of complementary policies at um, both the business level and both at the government level. So management, I'm going to show you, is absolutely critical to that. Technology, I'm going to also argue, is not... Uh, in general, reducing the quantity of jobs, but it is changing the quality of jobs. So in terms of the um, wages that different jobs get paid, in terms of the number of jobs, uh, different parts of uh, the distribution, that is where technology is having effect. In particular, it's having effect in the, for the middle school group, and it's, ha it's kind of one of the forces leading to polarization uh, and also some of the problems uh, for kind of low-wage and middle-skilled middle workers. So I think that it, when we think about policy, which I'll come on to towards the end of the talk, we really think, have to think about a policy agenda that both boosts productivity, but also um, shares those benefits to ordinary workers. So we need an agenda for inclusive prosperity, very much in line with, I think, the work which uh, I was involved with the LSE Growth Commission that Francesco Caselli was also a commissioner for. Um, and I think those are the kind of policies, both in the UK and more generally, we need to have in order to uh, make the best use of the new technology, technological opportunities facing us. Okay, so here's the kind of outline of the talk. We're going to talk about, you know, what am I talking about? I talk about the new technologies. Well, I'm going to give you some examples. Go on to growth, then go on to the labor market, and finally end up with questions over policy. And then we'll have a, have a Q&A. Okay, so what, you know, how should we think about you know, technologies? There's different ways to do this. I'm not sure this is the best way, but I think it's one of the ways you can think about the history of, uh, of technologies, which is in terms of revolutions. So we all, you know, if th those of you like myself were brought up in England, we'd have all learned about the first industrial revolution in England with uh, steam power uh, and, you know, at the end of the 18th century. Less well known is the second industrial revolution at the end of the 19th century. Around, you know, the, the, the decade of the 1880s had this kind of, these three major innovations around the internal combustion engine, uh, communications with radio and also electricity. So that led to another kind of you know, major kind of technological change. The third industrial revolution uh, was a shorter one from the mid-1990s to about 2004. And this is um, the digital revolution. I'm going to talk about the kind of digital revolution and what it was. So underlying the kind of digital revolution really is uh, you know, Moore's law. So Moore's law um, uh, was by Gordon Moore, who was the, uh, the CEO and founder of Intel. And back in the mid-60s, he predicted um, that, you, you know, that every two years or so, you could double the amount of transistors on an inch of silicon. And if you look over the time uh, since then, Moore's law has you know, proven you know, remarkably robust. So this is actually a logarithmic scale. Uh, these are lots of different kind of computer technologies, everything from the Spark M7 and the most recent vintage down to the Intel 4004 in 1970. So you can see that this is this remarkable exponential growth of the, the productivity in the semiconductor industry. And if you, uh, you know, what, what are, you know, this is kind of well known, this is one of the driving forces of uh, technological progress underlying computers. Um, one of the things which is worth remembering, though, is that although this represents very fast productivity growth, translated into productivity, it's about a 35% increase in productivity every year. You know, that's very, very, that's a lot of productivity. But what a lot of people forget is that that increase of productivity has not, you know, has not come by magic. Part of the reason that it's come has been because 
Uh, Moore's Law almost set a target, a roadmap, and the industry tried to meet that. And one of the ways it tried to meet that was by vast investments in research and development. So this is with, uh, comes from a paper with um, Stanford co-authors like Chad Jones that I've been working on. This is the kind of 35% increase of productivity um, over this period. But this line shows you the increase of, uh, of the number of researchers who are working in semiconductors. So this has risen by a factor of 18 since the period since 1970. So this incredible productivity growth of Moore's Law has been generated by you know, huge increases of R&D. And it shows you, you know, productivity is not like manna from heaven. It comes from somewhere, and that, it comes from the effort of research and development. That's the kind of, I guess, the key insight uh, of endogenous growth theory and that Paul Romer and Philippe Aguillon has, uh, have emphasized. And of course, you know, unless we carry on investing in research, we won't get the same kind of productivity growth which we, we've had in the past. So, you know, this has happened. We've had this big increase of productivity growth in, in kind of semiconductors. Um, why has this translated through into uh, more general increases of productivity? Um, well, there's certain features of digital technologies which have enabled these to have a, a big impact. So one of those is, you know, the fast rate of productivity growth. The second is that um, once you kind of uh, generate the kind of innovation, the knowledge, it's very easy to kind of reproduce it. So think about writing a, a bit of software code. It's often quite hard to write your initial program, but then it's very easy to kind of replicate that over and over again. And the replication ha can happen very cheaply, almost the cost of zero. The fixed cost might be high to generate it, but the marginal cost of reproducing it is very low. It can be reproduced quickly, almost perfectly, and it can spread around the world very quickly. It can diffuse very rapidly. So those particular features of digital technologies are part of the things which you know, powers the more general increase of productivity growth. Um, so you know, that, that, I'll come back to this, but that is what people talk about for the third industrial revolution. Now, what's the fourth, you know, fourth industrial revolution, as some people call it, um, which is built upon digital technologies? And the kind of things like this, robots, artificial intelligence, driverless cars. So let me, let me give you a few examples of what these are like. So you'll probably be quite familiar with the kind of you know, manufacturing technology in a kind of car, in a kind of car plant. This is a, a robotized car plant. You know, and this is an example of where you have increased the productivity and has almost completely replaced all the workers in this car plant. So that's manufacturing, but it's also true in services as well. So here is a, an Amazon warehouse. And um, you know, you know if you can see this, but these orange boxes here are, um, are um, Tiva robots. So what these robots are doing are, is carrying pallets you know, with different uh, books and other objects that Amazon is selling all over the warehouse. So the kind of signal comes in, the robot goes out, it gets the pallet, it moves it around. You can play a game here called Spot the Human. I don't know if any of you can spot the human. It's a bit like, you know, where's Wally or where's Waldo? You can actually, there's a human there hiding in the corner. But, you know, not many, not many humans here and this in the retail sector as opposed to the kind of manufacturing sector. Um, well, here's another a well-known example of a driverless car. So, you know, we're all very familiar with the idea that as driverless cars develop, these might replace uh, Uber drivers and, and taxi drivers. But actually, another uh, major uh, sector of the economy is truck drivers. There's about 4 million um, driving-related jobs in the U.S. in 2014. Um, and you can imagine if driverless cars become a, 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 you know, a popular technology, as most people think they will do over the next few years, then this uh, potentially replaces a lot of 
um, you know, a lot of drivers. And you, I, when, I, you know, when I was giving these kind of talks 10 or 15 years ago, we'd often talk about uh, the ability of technology to replace routine tasks, like the task of working in a, in a car production line or, the, or working in an Amazon factory. Driving a car is, it seems like a very non-routine task. You, know, you have to look around, make quick decisions, decide where to, especially in London, uh, decide how to avoid getting in a, into a car accidents. But with the advance in artificial intelligence, now that very uh, non-routine type of activity appears to be something which we can, we can program into, into, a, into a vehicle. Now, still have, you know, hasn't, hasn't been perfect yet, but um, it's certainly coming, coming relatively quickly. Um, Here's another example, So, because I've, li I've been living in Boston for the last uh, three years or so. So this is uh, from the Red Sox. So if you're in Boston, you have to like the Red Sox. You don't like baseball, you know, you're completely you know, ostracized from culture in Boston. So this is the kind of Red Sox. Um, the Red Sox won the World Series uh, last year, so go Red Sox. Um, this is a, a description of an earlier World Series game where they defeated the Cardinals 3-1. So you can hear that. You know, John Lester went seven. You don't know, you know, who, you know, one thing about, about baseball is very hard to understand. It makes cricket look easy. <laughs> so, you know, John Lester went seven, two-thirds inning, yielding those four hits, blah, blah, blah. The interesting thing about this is if you look at um, this up here, this was written by Automate Insights. So this report of the game is entirely generated by artificial intelligence. There's not a human involved with it. So this is, um, you think about Writing a newspaper article about sports, again, a more high-skilled task, involves creativity. Uh, this has been totally automated by AI. And this, was, this was actually from 2013. So you can see that you know, AI is all, you know, moving up the, uh, the kind of skill ladder now into tasks which we might think uh, are no longer manual tasks, but you know, more intellectual tasks. Um, so let me uh, give uh, one more example, this time from uh, IBM. So... Uh, this is from the American uh, um, game Jeopardy, a TV, a TV game where um, people have to answer different questions. And those questions are quite cri like cryptic crossword questions. So they're not the kind of, you know, it's not like multi you know, multiplying very large numbers or doing differential equations like many of you LSE students have to do. It's more these type of tricky, you know, tricky cryptic questions which requires you to, uh, you know, have some different types of knowledge. So, you know, this is uh, William Wilkinson's account of the principalities of Wallachia and Moldovia inspired this author's most famous novel. And the answer is, who, who said that? Dracula, yes. Of course, that's not quite the right answer because it's the author of Dracula, which was very good, excellent. So, Bram Stoker. So, actually, so um, the so this guy here, Mr. Jennings, is was the, at this time in 2011 the champion of Jeopardy. So he was, some people say, the most uh, successful Jeopardy player of all time. Um, this other guy, I don't know who he was. He looks like Eric Brynjolfsson, former colleague. Um, but in the middle, we have IBM Watson. So IBM developed this artificial intelligence-based uh, computer to answer these kind of questions. And uh, Watson won, you know, got this question. Many others, Mr. Jennings at the end was very magnanimous about losing to, to, uh, to IBM Watson. And you know, for one, he said he welcomed his new computer overlords to, uh, to rule the world. So you know, he's still smiling, even though he might be put out of a job. Um, but IBM, um, from this kind of Watson success, have developed this into many different technological areas. So here's my final example, which is from uh, IBM Watson's uh, health uh, part, which is oncology advisor. So again, you think oncology, cancer advice, extremely highly skilled, very uh, complicated. But you know, for a kind of uh, a, a oncologist, a doctor, 
uh, having the, a patient presenting themselves with symptoms, knowing all the most recent clinical trials, knowing all the most recent uh, medical papers and medical journals is you know, extremely difficult. And what, um, what the uh, IBM Watson does is it kind of takes all that kind of information from uh, different uh, clinical trials, from different medical publications, from the history of different patients, and it organizes alternative treatment plans for the patients and presents that to the doctor. So this is an example of three different patient plans, different confidence levels, different kind of patient preferences. Um, so this is an interesting example because, uh, for one, it's you know, very high-skilled, very kind of relatively complicated. Um, it's also something which you know, this uh, IBM would say this is not designed to replace, you never replace a cancer doctor, but it kind of supports the cancer doctor's role in helping making diagnoses and treatment plans. But you know, nevertheless, um, you know, a, potential, a potentially significant improvement in terms of uh, kind of health, health productivity. So these are just a few examples, but they do show you the breadth of how um, AI-based and robotic-based technologies seem to be having you know, remarkable uh, impacts on, on overall productivity in, in the economy. So what do the numbers look like when we look at productivity? Well, um, let's just take, uh, you know, the, this is, I, I'm going to take the, United, the US because the US is kind of close, is, you know, is a, is a country, a major country close to the technological frontier. And I'm going to look at a measure that economists call total factor productivity. So that's the kind of output when you've controlled for the kind of conventional inputs like labor and capital. And you look at the kind of growth of efficiency in the economy using that measure. And the height of this bar is the annual percentage growth in total factor productivity. So for the 25 years after the Second World War, you can see that um, US productivity growth, and you think of this as frontier, the kind of frontier growth, if you like, was growing at about two percentage points a year. So that's you know, pretty, you know, a good, steady level of productivity. It accounts for most of the overall US growth, actually, over this period. Um, so that was, that was for kind of the first, now the mid-1970s the mid came along the kind of two big OPEC oil shocks. And then what happened over the next 20 years is this period of the productivity slowdown. So productivity growth was more like half a percentage points a year during the kind of 1974 to 1995 period. So, and one of the, of course, the surprising things, this is why it's sometimes called the productivity paradox, is that um, you know, this was the period when computers started becoming more, uh, more prevalent in the, in, in the economy, both in the US and in other parts of the world. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, the Nobel laureate uh, Robert Solow in 1907 said, you know, you can see the computer age everywhere but in the productivity statistics. And this became the kind of Solow paradox. Um, the paradox was lost, in some sense, in what happened in what I term the third industrial revolution. So in this period from the mid-1990s, uh, you know, from 1960 to 2004, productivity growth surged again in the U.S., so it almost reached the same level, basically, as it was in the post-war period. So at this point, um, you know, this seemed to be the residue. Finally, you know, finally, we have seen the impact of computers and the productivity numbers because uh, we saw this in, in, in this kind of third industrial revolution, this digital revolution period. The problem is, is what's happened since 2004. So if we look at what's happened um, over the last uh, 14, 14 or 15 years, then what we see is that productivity growth has kind of returned back to the levels it was during this kind of 20 year the productivity slowdown. So despite this uh, waves of robotic technology, of artificial intelligence, you know, we haven't seen this yet coming through to the productivity numbers. 
So why, why might that be the case? So um, it's, of course, you know, it's very hard to be sure since you know, these are relatively new technologies. But we can look back at that earlier period of the uh, productivity miracle of the 10 years after 1996 to see what might be some of the reasons why we haven't seen these uh, new technologies hit, the product, you know, hit productivity as much as we might think. So looking back at the impact of studies on the impact of digital technologies, um, information communication technologies, or ICT, um, more at the micro level, industry level, or firm level, and the macro level, um, what we've kind of found, or what many studies have found, is that ICT has had a positive impact on productivity when you try and separate it. You know, for example, taking firms looking before and after the introduction or the increases of uses of information technology, uh, controlling for other factors. So it does appear to be a positive correlation between the growth of uh, digital technologies and the growth of productivity. Um, we, um, one of the things which was found was that the industries that were responsible for this, the US productivity miracle were those which either produced IT intensity, like the kind of semiconductor industry that I showed you at the beginning of the talk, uh, the Moore's Law type of effects, but also the industries which used IT intensively. So retail, wholesale, which actually were producing this, these new technologies, they were using them very intensively. Think about Walmart's uh, software system, uh, you know, controlling the kind of inventory and distribution uh, of, its, of its distribution system, or the Amazon example I showed you. These are actually, these are actually companies that use IT quite a lot. So these were responsible for the, uh, you know, in a statistical sense, for the growth of productivity over this period. But one of the important things which was also found, especially from the firm level work, is that it took a while, many years, for these, uh, these adoption of these new technologies to impact themselves on productivity. It wasn't something which happened overnight. And a second thing was that the impact of the technology was incredibly variable. So some, some companies could spend huge amounts on information technologies and get very little productivity benefit from that. Some could spend a smaller amount and get much bigger benefits. Um, I mean, my, my personal experience, I have a very direct personal experience of this, which is that um, for my sins, I spent a year of my life working in the National Health Service. And uh, in, the, in the early 2000s, there was uh, a very big increase of ICT. In fact, I, I was not responsible for this ICT thing. I was, uh, I was working on the more labor market side of things. But if you, you know, this was the biggest civilian um, uh, investment technology uh, ex expenditure, systematic expenditure in, in, the, in the Western world. And you know, the results of the big uh, IT spending in the NHS were very disappointing. So this is from an article in The Guardian where it mentions that the abandoned IT system cost about 10 billion pounds. It uh, was called the biggest IT failure ever seen. Um, and uh, you know, the, for example, the abandoned patient's record system cost the taxpayer almost 10 billion. So you know, the, you know, the results of this, you know, a lot of money spent, but relatively and little reward. You know, and this is not just confined to the, oh, the lights just went out there. <laughs> So we try to have a sleep at the back. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, yeah, see if we can fix the lights. So we can fix the lights. Um, thank you. Um, so uh, you know this. Uh, you, know, the, you know why? Why was this the case? It's like a disco in here or something. Isn't it? <laughs> Maybe I should do a dance or something like that. I have to get Steve on stage to do that. Um, so when does? Uh, so so why was it the case that these huge uh, investments? in the National Health Service or many other companies don't seem to be uh, producing the productivity that we would hope. 
Well, one of the lessons is that in order to get the most out of these new technologies, these inf- especially these information technology te- um, investments, it's necessary to actually make other investments and also experiment in the best way to use these new technologies. And for that, you need some flexibility, and as I'll show you, some, some good management. This is actually true at the macro level as well, the micro level. So you know, the historian Paul David has uh, some nice work on looking at the impact of electricity and in the second industrial revolution. And he showed, just like the third industrial revolution, it took many years before the, uh, the innovations in, in electricity fed through into productivity increases. And one of, those things, one of the reasons for that was that people had to figure out you know, the best way to use it. They had to reorganize the way they, um, the way they organized their factories to run them uh, 24 hours a day, to use lighting and other, other things. And that took a, that took a lot of uh, uh, experimentation and a lot of uh, improvements in management. So management, you know, people have argued it seems to be critical from looking at case studies as well as skills. Um, it's always been very hard to evaluate this argument. So you know, management is one of the hardest things to actually measure. So you know, economists have been reluctant to accept this because of the difficulties of measuring management. Um, Chad Syverson uh, uh, at the University of Chicago has said that when it comes to management, no potential driving factor of productivity is in a higher ratio of speculation to empirical study. This is a picture from the San Francisco bookshop. You know, this could be any bookshop in the, any airport in the world. Lots of uh, case studies of famous uh, uh, managers like uh, Steve Jobs or Richard Branson. Um, you know, one of the reasons I got a little bit skeptical was that, as Steve uh, Pischke said, um, I, uh, I, you know, I, you know, I've worked a lot on trying to measure management. Um, I was working initially with McKinsey um, uh, in terms of running some of our early management surveys, and I went to a talk at McKinsey. So no offense to people in McKinsey here, but I, a, a partner who I won't name was talking about a new book he'd just written, and it was saying you know, this was uh, an example of a very productive and innovative company using the best management practices, and other companies must emulate the way it was, it was working. And this company turned out to be called a company called Enron. And you know, at the time he was speaking, if you turned around and looked at a TV screen, the CEO and the CFO would be literally dragged away in handcuffs from the, uh, from the headquarters for accounting fraud in, in Enron. In fact, some people said you should change the symbol of Enron to be like this. <laughs> Flipping the bird, as, uh, as the Americans would say. So, you know, we have to be a little bit skeptical about, you know, some of the kind of case study. You know, the problem with case study is the sample size is pretty small. Sample size is one. And uh, it's pretty highly, you know, often very highly selected, uh, uh, very highly selected uh, cases. So, you know, in order to try and get, um, you know, more concrete measurement, together with Nick Bloom and Raphael Asadon, um, when I was working here at LSE, we developed with McKinsey and other, other kind of consultants, um, some ways of measuring some different types of management practice. So I haven't got time to go into details of the methodology. There's basically three parts. Uh, one is that you know, we try to think of uh, things which were generally accepted to be important in terms of productivity, like um, you know, monitoring and collecting data, uh, setting goals and targets. You know, targets should be stretching, but not impossible. Um, you want to collect some data on what's happening in your workplace. And people management practice, so how you pay people, promote them, retain them and hire them. This was a kind of 45-minute kind of phone interview, typically of middle managers. Um, if you're interested, all this data is up on, on the web. But you know, these were kind of basic management practices, not the kind of complex, highfalutin things like 
prices and, and M&A, more kind of basic management practices. So um, we kind of interviewed um, you know, tens of thousands of managers at this point across 35 countries to get information and we kind of quantified the kind of management uh, quality based on those. Um, even with the best question in the world, how do we know people are just not you know, lying to you when you, uh, when, you, when you do these interviews? Well, we developed various tricks to uh, try and get good responses. So we had this double blind technique. The managers we're interviewing don't know that we're scoring them. They think it's an open-ended, friendly interview with a, somebody doing, a student doing a kind of summer project. In the meantime, these interviewers have had you know, two weeks training here and at you know, Kinsey or some other uh, consultancy, and we kind of, you know, the reason that we do that um, is that if the managers knew they were being scored, they might give you the answers that they want, that they thought you wanted to hear. This is very important to try and, uh, you know, get to elicit uh, good responses. The interviewers also themselves didn't know anything about the company's performance because these are middle, typically middle-sized companies, about 250 employees at the median. They're not companies you would ever really have heard of. So you know, the, the interviews themselves wouldn't have come in with many uh, prejudices. And then finally, we got a pretty good response rate, about 45%. Things look balanced on the observables. Um, we managed to get this high response rate um, partly through having you know, uh, MBA type of students who are kind of Latin. Having taught many of these, you know, it's very hard to teach these students. <laughs> but the good thing about having them as uh, having interviewers, they can be loud, assertive, and business experience, you know, like taking no for an answer. Um, and uh, we also got you know, official endorsement from you know, many different reputable institutions like the Bundesbank and the Bank of England and others. Different things worked in different countries. We had a letter from the US Federal Reserve that worked very badly. Americans hate the government. You know, you call up and you know, we said, oh, this is a study done by LSE and done by you know, Stanford and you know, it's you know, endorsed by the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve, is that the government? You know, it's liberal, communist, slam the phone down. That is a terrible idea. You don't mention that. You know, MBA, just, you know, they're, they're much more uh, open to the MBA students. They kind of like that. The Germans, I have to say, by contrast, Steve, they like the Bundesbank letter with the double-headed eagle crest as a sign of authority, so they're very respectful to that. So we got a good response from Germany thanks to that. So different things work in different countries, but uh, out of that we managed to get uh, quite a lot of uh, responses. This is, a kind of, you know, this is a couple of examples of what we've looked for. So and this is an example from a kind of manufacturing plant where we're looking for the collection of uh, data frequently. It's also important that the data is not just kind of locked up in the CEO's office. It's displayed so it can be used in order to um, set sensible goals, in order to give kind of feedback. That's a kind of manufacturing example. This is an example from a hospital. So although we started with manufacturing, we uh, subsequently branched out the, the um, survey technique to hospitals, to schools, to retail, uh, basically across the whole economy. So this is an example from Virginia Mason in Seattle. So uh, this is like a lot of information that the doctors have collected. And every Tuesday, they have this thing called the Tuesday stand-up where um, staff look at the kind of information about what's happened over the last week. They talk to each other. They try and figure out how they could use this information to kind of improve the performance and productivity of the, of the hospital. So if you're interested, uh, it's all up on the website, uh, worldmanagementsurvey.org. We've done four major waves, um, basically, you know, LSE for almost all of them, uh, 34 countries, about 20,000 surveys. Um, I, I mentioned I, one thing I should mention if you're interested. So, the first um, when, you know, the, the methodology I described is pretty expensive. So, you know, we've had to raise a lot of money to do it. Um, in recent years, what we've also been doing is using a kind of simpler survey 
that uh, where we've partnered with the statistical, national statistical agencies of different com- countries, like the Office of National Statistics or the US Census Bureau. And the, the good thing about doing that is, although the data is not as high quality as we got for the World Management Survey, it means that we can scale this up. So with the US Census Bureau now, we have uh, 80,000 interviews in two waves. Um, we can link that management data to all the national statistics on investments and productivity and employment and <coughs> skills. Um, and you know, this was first done in the US, but it's now done in 10 other countries. So management is becoming part of almost the national statistical infrastructure of many of these, con- many of these countries. I think the lessons which come out are actually very similar. So what I'm going to talk about is actually some of the similarities we found. So what are the kind of things that we have found? So if you just do the scores on the doors, this is the average management score across firms across countries. So you know, you, it's kind of unsurprising in some sense that the US gets the highest average management score, Japan and Germany, Sweden close behind. UK is not doing too badly. We're, we're ahead of France. That's the main thing. Got to always be ahead of France. <laughs> not statistically so, so unfortunately. Then go down, you, know, you go down here, you get to other countries in southern Europe, like Italy, Portugal. You go further down, you get to some emerging countries like China, Turkey, Brazil, and the uh, countries at the bottom are kind of Latin America and Africa. So this looks a lot like the productivity distribution. If you line this up against the kind of TFP distribution, there's a pretty high correlation. Um, what really is more fascinating for me than the kind of cross-country work is actually what the differences are between, within countries. So if you look at the distribution of these management scores within countries, you see vast differences. So you know, you know, com- you, know, com- you see uh, you know some companies doing extremely well, some doing averagely, some doing very badly. Even in a country like the U.S., which has you know a relatively high score. So uh, you know, in a country like the U.K. You can see there's you know, firms down here where they're basically promoting people irrespective of their ability and effort. They're not collecting systematic data. As you know. For economists, when I first saw this, it's amazing how these firms even exist. But in fact, having talked to them, there are a lot of firms which are actually pretty badly managed, it turns out. I shouldn't have been so surprised. Um, one interesting fact is that you know, one, of the, you know, one of the differences, if you look between, say, the US and the UK, is what's happening in the lower tail. There's a much thicker lower tail than the UK, and in particular in developing countries like India. And that immediately suggests that part of the difference here is due to competition. So competition is much stronger in the US, thinning out some of the, uh, the badly managed, less productive firms in the left, left tail. Um, yeah, I have to say, one of the good things about doing this kind of work is you get to do the kind of radical economic methodology of what's called talking to people, which is not something that economists we do very much. Uh, and when you talk to people, you find out things you weren't expecting. So, uh, you know, one of the things we, we show in the paper is that, um, you know, foreign direct investment is very helpful for productivity in the sense that the uh, foreign multinationals tend to be better managed. There seems to be some spillovers. Um, we had to define what foreign ownership was, of course, and that actually sometimes leads to some difficulties. So in Italy, for example, one manager we interviewed said that we're owned by the mafia. And the interviewer at that point got extremely nervous. Uh, and he said, I think that's in the other category, but I guess I can put you down as an Italian multinational. So that's, that's how that's what, that one is coded. Now, having lived in America now for a while, you know, America does very well, high productivity, high management. It's not great at everything. Having a daughter in a U.S. public school, which is a government school in, in the U.S., I've learned that geography is not necessarily the strongest point. So uh, we interviewed one manager who, who uh, the interview said, how many production sites do you have abroad? 
And a manager in Indiana said, well, we have one in Texas. Apparently, <laughs> uh, Texas is almost like a different country, so maybe it's not the right answer. So what do we find from this type of data? Well, the first thing uh, is that if you kind of correlate uh, the management scores with measures of productivity, for example, you find a very strong relationship. So you know, these, these are the guys in the top 10% of the distribution versus the bottom 10%. So much higher productivity for the uh, firms who are high scoring than low scoring. That's true of profitability. It's true of output growth. Uh, it's true for trade of exporters. You also even see a, a relation with innovation, R&D or patents. And that's kind of interesting. And a lot of people think that, you know, the kind of measures that we, we, we collect, uh, they may be useful for improving productivity, but they're actually not, they're not good for you know, innovation. They kind of dull creativity. At least in the correlation sense, that, that's not what we're seeing. So it might be that you know, you, you know, even if you're managing an R&D lab, having decent management is a, is, a, is a good idea. So there's a strong correlation in measures of performance. But of course, we can't assume that these are causal. You know, it could be, there could be other factors we're not controlling for. Maybe if you're more productive, you can hire better managers or people who talk better about their management practices. Um, so you know, the things that one can do to try and address that, you know, is there a causal impact on management productivity? You can look over time across firms or across establishment. Single firm, that still it helps control for some things, but it's not perfect. Uh, a better way is to use a nat natural experiment. So there's literature emerging for example, uh, there's this nice uh, paper by Mariana Ghiracelli, who's looked at the Marshall Aid Plan in the US and Italy after the war, where they invested a lot in improving management, took some managers over to Italy to try and retrain them. They found very big effects on productivity. And a new literature which has emerged on using randomized control trials, you know, real clinical experiments and managements. Uh, again, you know, different, no, not every, not every um, experiment finds the same effect, but taking as a whole, and most of these studies have found um, positive and significant effects on management, which are quantitatively um, large and you know, not out of line with some of the non-experimental evidence. So you know, uh, Nick's work in uh, India, uh, there's work in Mexico by Brune, there's work in Teachers by Fryer, there's work on uh, airline pilots by Gosnell, um, there's a nice survey by McKinsey and Woodruff if you're, if, if you're interested in looking in the small. But the bottom line from this is it does seem to be some causal effect. Um, one of the things that we've done, I mean, going back to thinking about the kind of technology story, is we, you know, in, uh, in a paper with Nick Bloom and Raphael Salem, we uh, revisited this question about um, the productivity miracle period. So here's the productivity miracle period where US productivity uh, jumped ahead. Interestingly, in Europe, we don't see that productivity miracle. So in Europe, Europe was catching up with the productivity of the US until the mid-1990s. And at that point, the US then took off and went ahead. So one question is, well, why, given these technologies were available all over the world, why was it that the US was able to uh, seem to make better use of those? And it turns out that if you combine the management data with information ICT, that uh, like other studies, you find ICT improves productivity. But where you had better people management, where your workers could be moved, were more flexible in terms of their skills, where the hiring was more careful, where there was more uh, promotion based on ability, you found that IT had a much bigger effect than it did where you had weaker management practices. So the kind of well-managed firms seem to get double the productivity boost from IT compared to the poorly managed. And if you use that, you know, extrapolating it heroically from the macro level, it can maybe explain half of this kind of productivity difference. So, you know, one of the things which might be happening is that the American firms are more flexible and better managed and able to use the technology in order to help them deliver the productivity miracle over this period. 
Okay, so that's the kind of growth, that's the kind of growth story. And now I want to move on to the labor market story. What's happened to jobs, wages, and skills? So, you know, the motivation for this is that, you know, a lot of the pictures I've shown you, you might think, well, maybe they'll make our lives better in health innovation, for example. But, you know, well, maybe it's Robocalypse now. So the jobs Robocalypse is coming, and uh, we should all be uh, terrified of the Terminators coming to steal our jobs. Um, that, you know, that fear of job loss is not a new fear. So uh, here's some, you know, this is, this, so this is the kind of uh, Luddite revolution breaking the machines, but more recently even, this is, the, this is for the Daily Mirror in, uh, in, in about 1928, automation in Britain stirs unrest, workers see robot revolution depriving them of their jobs, and, and the same for the New York Times, march the machine makes idle hands. So this fear of um, the destruction of jobs from robots new technology is not a, not a new fear, it's very much uh, there even in the... Uh, even in the kind of Great Depression period. And the fact is there in the Great Depression should actually tell you something. Often during times of stress, like the times we've lived through since the global financial crisis, um, it's easy to blame technology as a displacement activity for problems which may not be uh, related to technology. So if you looked at, say, jobs in the U.S. economy, you certainly wouldn't see uh, any fears of a robocalypse. So you know, in the U.S. economy, there are about 18 million jobs added since 2010. Uh, in the UK, this is the employment rate rather than the number of jobs. So, you know, the fraction of, uh, of, of adults in, uh, in work is at 76%. It's higher than it was um, back, in the, back uh, when records started in, in 1970. So the employment rate is actually at historical highs in, in uh, the UK. Um, so why, you know, despite these ways of automation, what, you know, why could that be? And, and, you know, the reason that it's important to think about this is that Yes, of course, it's true. When you look at the pictures I showed you, if you're just doing what you were doing before, producing the same amount of cars or delivering the same amount of packages, robots are going to, or other kinds of automation, are going to replace people. That's going to reduce employment. But there's at least four different offsetting forces which would lead in the opposite direction. So I'm going to call these uh, Uber effects, Walmart effects, business-to-business effects, and the creation of new work and new tasks. So what's, what do I mean by Uber effects? Well, um, if you produce um, a better product, or, you know, either, either more efficient or better quality, then what that means is that more people might want to use your product. And if enough people want to use your product, this can actually mean the amount of product, the amount of service you use expands. And that can more than offset, potentially, the loss of employment because you're actually employing a lot more people to deliver the increase of demand. So here's just an example from taxis in New York City. So, you know, if you looked at taxi trips and yellow cabs between 2015 and 2018, they fell dramatically from 410,000 to 295,000. But if you looked at all, um, you know, trips, you know, ta- you know, taxis plus ride hailing, that actually rose from 475,000 to 820,000. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is that the convenience and speed at which you can use ride-hailing has actually meant more people are using ride-hailing services. That can create its own problems in terms of congestion. But in terms of the total number of taxi drivers, um, there's actually been you know, a remarkable increase of the number of taxi drivers. That's just an example of how a better technology, by reducing the uh, cost of labor, can also reduce the, the price and therefore increase demand, depending on demand sensitivities. So that's one effect. The second effect is that you know, even if um, you know, jobs fall, so take Walmart and retail, um, the fact that now that prices are cheaper means that kind of people have more money to spend on other things. 
So maybe, you know, if prices are cheaper, you're spending less money in the supermarket, but you're spending more money on other luxuries. And then the demand for other goods can increase. Um, and that may also, you know, increase the amount of demand in the economy and therefore offset the number of job losses. That's what we call a Walmart effect, a fall in the cost of necessities, freeze income for luxuries. A third effect is kind of business-to-business effect. So take steel as an example of this. So um, to produce a person hour required to produce one tonne of steel, that's 40 between 1918 and 2017. It used to take 10 person hours, now only takes 1.5 person hours. And this has led to a fall of employment in the steel industry. And of course, there's Donald Trump arguing for the you know, tariffs to protect the steel industry. But it, you've got to remember that steel is a product which then feeds into many other industries. So if we looked at metal-using jobs in the US, there's a lot more metal-using jobs than there are steel jobs. And the fall of the price of steel from this you know, technological change has meant that the costs of these other industries have fallen. Uh, if these are passed on to um, downstream to, to, to uh, consumers, this can also create uh, greater demand. It's, a, it's clearly good for these steel-using industries that you can now buy things more cheaply. So even in the kind of business-to-business uh, context, these uh, improvements of uh, technology can lead on to potential improvements of jobs downstream. So then finally, um, even if it's the case that jobs as a whole in existing industries and occupations fall, one of the important things is that many, many of these technologies create new jobs which didn't exist before. So here's a bunch of jobs which 10 years ago didn't even exist as occupations, app developers, social media managers, sustainability managers, YouTube content, etc., etc. This is, does anybody know who this is, by the way? Miranda Sings, of course, my daughter's favorite YouTube star. So I was introduced to Miranda Sings, this is the same woman, by the way, uh, as a YouTube star. So a YouTube star you know, makes YouTube clips, very easy, very easy and cheap to do, and they kind of monetize this. So, many, so my daughter's 12, and if you ask, uh, so if it's good or a bad thing, if you ask, you know, many of her, what do you want to do when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a YouTuber. What a YouTuber. Well, a YouTube, you know, you appear on YouTube, you make clips, you appear, um, you go around uh, the country, around the world, people pay to talk to you, have your autograph. It's a, you know, it's a complete, you know, new, new, new occupation. So, you know, technology is also creating many of these occupations which didn't exist before. So, you know, I, I think, you know, one way to think, of the, think about this is, is uh, the way that Asamuglu and Rostropo are doing in a couple of the recent things. So, automation tends to reduce overall labor demand through this direct effect. But then there's this kind of reinstatement effect generated by these new tasks, which can counterbalance this, uh, this kind of fall, of fall of demand. And I think the optimistic story is that if you look at unemployment uh, in the long run, we don't see unemployment trending up despite these vast improvements in productivity. Um, hours worked have fallen, but you know, the, number of, number of, uh, the quantity of jobs I don't think is the problem. The issue, I think, is much more the quality of jobs the desirability of work and the wages attached to that work. And I think the much more worrying thing about the impact of technology is from what you know, some, some people could call the barbell labor market. So if you go back to 1979, divide occupations into low, medium, and high skill based on their wages, then you know, you know, about 61% of jobs are medium skill. If you go to uh, today, that proportion has dropped by uh, almost 20%. So you know, the, 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 the numbers in the middle, the fraction in the middle has gone lower. The fraction at the top has increased a lot. There's a lot of you know, big increase of high-skilled jobs, like the jobs that we do, and architects, doctors, and lawyers. Um, and in fact, there is even some increase at the lowest skill. So um, you know, cleaners, janitors, 
um, landscape garden, uh, gardeners, those have all actually somewhat gone up. Those are, you know, the drivers would be one of those, in fact. Um, those are vulnerable. Those are at the, so the, although the number of jobs have gone up, the wages have not. Um, but, you know, one of the big falls of employment has happened in this kind of middle group. Uh, and this is not just this in the U.S., but if you look across basically all OECD countries, this is the kind of middle group of workers. This is taken from uh, Alan Manning's work. You can see the fraction of jobs in the middle has fallen just about everywhere. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, you can see that. There's, there's the U.K. here, where there's also a very big fall in the fraction of uh, middle, middle paying jobs. So, you know, and people like uh, Guy Michaels, who is here, has related this uh, change of the different types of jobs to the adoption of information and communication technologies and shown that there's a you know, strong relationship between the introduction of ICT at the industry level and the fall of demand for these kind of middle school jobs. So I think this is the main challenge, actually, that um, technology is actually pushing, uh, is creating more polarisation both in the labour market and maybe more broadly in society. Uh, and affecting the quality of jobs rather than worrying about the, the overall quantity of jobs. One, one question, of course, is what are these new jobs uh, when we think about the occupations? What are they coming from? So, you know, there are, you know, it's true that if you look at STEM jobs like computer science, operational research, medical scientists, you know, these are in increasing demand. But in fact, you know, the, a lot of the categories are not simply STEM jobs. So uh, if you look at you know, the growth of uh, employment, there's a lot of growth in uh, jobs which have some technical, te technical content, but also some soft skills, so skills of communication. So teachers, managers, nurses, these are actually are jobs which have increased uh, in demand a lot over the last uh, 15 years or so. And those of you who are students in the audience, you'll be pleased to see, here's economists. Uh, so you know, economists do, uh, we're lumped in with survey researchers, by the way. So. <laughs> Um, so, you know, why, you know, why is that? So, you know, sort of, obviously, you might think these more technological jobs are important. But uh, why are communication skills? Well, communication skills are actually very difficult to automate. So, you know, the artificial intelligence uh, you know, programs we're seeing are, are starting to try and mimic conversation. They often mimic them very badly. So here's an example. So all, you know, many of you will have iPhones, which have Siri on them. Uh, you know, I'm sure all of you have experienced some frustration with using Siri. It doesn't always do what you ask it to do. So here's an example. You need to start understanding me, Siri. I'll make a note of that. Yeah, you better make a note of that. Got it. <laughs> of that has made a note. So that is, <laughs> I can show you many other examples where uh, there is some communication problems between the kind of AI developed. So, so, you know, this kind of soft skill, the combination of soft skills and hard skills uh, are actually the occupations which are growing, growing pretty, pretty rapidly. David Deming, that picture is from, has uh, got a lot of nice work on that. So in the last five minutes, let me just move on to uh, some questions on the policy agenda um, that we're, faced, we're facing. So you know, my perspective, I think, is that you know, technologies create challenges and opportunities. I don't see technology as the enemy. Uh, it's rather bad policy which is the enemy. So, you know, we, we can, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, these technologies should be a force for good. They should be a force for productivity increase to make our lives better. But uh, it's not necessarily going to be like that unless we try and collectively uh, shape those technologies in a way which is good for our society. So how to do that? Well, you know, we're, for business leaders, that's a question of needing better management to organize these complementary change organization skills. For governments, we need policies that are going to maximize the opportunities and minimize the costs. Um, if we thought of the, the kind of desirable society, um, you know, meritocracy, I think, should be part of that. So I think there should be some rewards for effort and ability. 
Um, but it's really important um, when we think of this to prevent the people who and the firms who succeed uh, from, you know, from using their power to prevent the less fortunate from having the opportunities to catch up. So both in terms of individuals or families for social mobility, but also in terms of firms. We're living in a world now, um, as you know, if you're, if you're around for the, uh, there's going to be a conference on uh, Friday about this, we're living in a world where superstar firms are becoming more and more important. Firms are getting larger, markets getting more concentrated. If we allow those firms to put up barriers which prevent new firms uh, taking, uh, taking those markets, then we can end up in a much worse situation than we are now. So, you know, I think that that is a very important uh, first order fact we should deal with. So one of the practical policies we should think of, you know, this, uh, I think the first thing has to be increasing human capital for two reasons. It boosts productivity, but it also puts downward pressure on real wages of the, of the, more, uh, the, the more educated relative to the less educated. So uh, in a policy which invests hugely in both preschool and school. Britain in particular has a problem with further education apprenticeships. There's Sandra Minali here who runs a, one of the centre ceilings is one of the, one of the weaknesses of the UK. We do relatively well at universities. We do a lot more poorly at kids who are not going to university, but also training over, over, the, over, the, over the long run. So, you know, I think when we think about policies, we have to think about this dual mandate to both increase productivity, but also to have policies that try to reduce inequality and increase opportunity, then I think increasing human capital is probably the most important one in terms of doing that. As I mentioned, I think supporting competition is extremely important. So you know, a lot of our work in management shows that increased product market competition is one of the major forces for improving management productivity. It both um, pushes out the badly managed firms and rewards the well-managed firms, but it also incentivizes those firms to kind of improve their productivity, improve their management. And as I mentioned, this, this kind of world we're moving into, which is a more winner-take-all world, um, think about digital technologies, these are dominated by very large firms, the Facebooks, the Apples, the Googles, the Netflix, the Microsofts of the world. Um, you know, I, you know, to some extent, those firms have reached those positions through innovating, but once they've got those positions, there is a serious risk they could use that to further entrench their position. So we have to think of competition policy antitrust rules, which are more focused on protecting future competition. Too much of what we do in, when we look at a merger is just saying, you know, what's the current market shares of firms? What matters you know, in these new, new industries is not the current market shares, but the future market shares. Let's think about Facebook. Facebook took over uh, WhatsApp and Instagram. WhatsApp and Instagram were both viable uh, potential platforms to compete with Facebook. Now they're part of Facebook, they're no longer competitors. So I think we need to seriously think about how we deal with uh, appropriate kind of competition rules for a world which is more like winner-take-all or winner-take-mosts. I think a, a third group of policies is around kind of what you might call green growth. Clearly, the, well, perhaps the major challenge facing us as a species is climate change. How are we going to deal with climate change? Well, as economists, we always say a carbon tax. And you know, I'm a great supporter of carbon taxes. But I think it's not going to be sufficient, both for, you know, at least for political reasons, for sure. So we need to combine uh, a kind of a carbon tax type of policy with a massive technology program, a kind of a moonshot type of uh, program to kind of increase the amounts of research and development we need, need to deliver green growth of the future. Um, there is a, you know, a, a, a question, of, and I've talked about left behind in terms of families, but you can also think about left behind in terms of places. So one of the problems you know, with this polarization, it's not just 
between uh, workers, it's also between places. We saw that in the Brexit vote in the UK, we've seen that in Trump in the US. So we have to really think about, if we want to have these type of policies to increase productivity, how we spread that geographically. So place-based policies and um, the, uh, the, M- MI, the uh, my former MIT colleagues, um, Jonathan Gruber uh, and uh, Simon Johnson have a new book out called Jumpstarting America, which proposes a kind of innovation challenge fund, which uh, is a kind of place-based policy to try and create new technology hubs in many of the left-behind places. I think that's <coughs> a gap. And finally, and this is something we stress in the RC Growth Commission, we need stable and politically independent institutions. So, you know, one of the things that is very important for long-term investment in infrastructure and innovation skills is having independent long-term institutions, which can be shielded from some of the daily political pressures. <coughs> so those are the kind of policies. What, how are things going? Well, you know, not very well. <laughs> you know, we've got the European elections tomorrow. Vote for main parties. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, the current populist wave, Trump in the US or Brexit here or you know, Brazil, many other countries. I think thinking about Brexit is, you know, things have gone in totally the opposite direction. So, uh, you know, if we leave um, uh, Europe, trade barriers are going to go up, tariff and non-tariff barriers, that's going to reduce competition, that's going to be bad for productivity and wages. Um, there's going to be deterrence of foreign investments, not, not least fire uncertainty. Um, migrants are going to, migration, the EU is going to be reduced who have been on average better educated, which have actually subsidised the British board. So all of these are moving in the wrong direction, unfortunately. Uh, so, you know, that's a warning about what's going to happen. I don't want to leave, leave us... You know, and also the thing on populists, you know, one of the things about populists, they attack expertise, the free press, independence, central banks, and the judiciary. I mean, it's been a very, uh, you know, salutary experience living in America under Donald Trump. Um, these are institutions which are actually very important for the um, success of nations, and they're being actually undermined at the moment in many countries. Um, and the you know, paranoia about, about foreigners just, doesn't just lead to trade wars, as we're living through now, but also risks real wars. So I think you know, we're in a very dangerous time. I don't want to leave you on a, on a depressed note, so I felt it was incumbent on me to leave you on an optimistic note. So I think you know, I'd just leave you with this one thing as another kind of policy. So with Raz Chetty... Um, Xavier Yaravel, who is here, and Viviana Petkova, and uh, Alex Bell. We've been working with big data on inventors. We have the population of US inventors and the population of the US. We match them together. And we've been looking at what makes an inventor. And it turns out that you know, your background and your exposure to innovation matters a lot on whether or not you grew up to become an inventor. So one major impediment to innovation is that many talented inventors are held back by being born to a poor family, being, uh, you know, being a woman rather than a man, being a minority rather than a majority. So we have a, a big opportunity to try and change that by giving talented people, the kind of Marie Curies or the Einsteins, more exposure to role models, to give them access to better schools, in order to use this kind of uh, pockets of talent we have to create new inventors and create new innovations of the future. Um, and you know, this is just an example of a kind of not-for-profit set up like that. Um, I think there's many other, other ways we can unlock this hidden talent. In the paper, we suggest this could quadruple the innovation rate uh, in, in the US, and I'm sure similar things will be true in the UK. So I will leave you with that uh, optimistic thought, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much, John, for this uh, 
very encompassing and, and inspiring lecture. Um, I'm sure there are going to be questions. We have about 25 minutes. And uh, when I call on you, please wait for the microphone to come around. So the gentleman in the back uh, there. Paul Hudson, no longer a fixed academic abode. Thank you very much for your nicely presented talk. Um, two or three things, I think, where I've got to, I feel I'm compelled to strike a sceptical note. Um, you quote various employment figures. I don't know what the situation is in the United States, but in Britain, uh, the press generally quotes a, a universal figure for employment, but they don't indicate a broad breakdown of whether workers are working for 14 or 40 hours. So I think these overall employment figures are not very meaningful. The other thing I wanted to raise with you is that uh, to talk about productivity as applied to an economy uh, as in Britain, which is largely a service sector economy, I don't think that makes much sense because by conventional measures of productivity, um, if we reduce the number of teachers in uh, schools per thousand pupils or the number of nurses per thousands of patients in hospitals, uh, we would expect, in fact, the outcomes to be worse. But by conventional productivity measures, um, it looks as if that's an improvement. And the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, you advocating competition. Um, if it was so good, why is there this um, strong movement for mergers and acquisitions activities? Of the literature that I've read, I, I'm not an expert in the field, let me declare my lack of credentials, but only about uh, a 40%, at least in this country, of mergers and acquisitions activities have led to any increase in efficiency in the operations of the firms. But if you look at the motive for it, it's not the industries themselves, it's the bankers that are retained, in fact, who are leading it all. They just want to make the money. They're not really interested in the industry. I speak from people uh, with, uh, in fact, I've got relatives, in fact, who've worked as uh, consultants in investment banking, and I've looked at their reports. Quite honestly, if you look at them, they wouldn't even pass Muster's first year uh, <laughs> student uh, level. Thank you. So thank, thank you for those, uh, those, those three very good points. Um, you know, just to, to, to be briefly in responding, yes, I mean, the, um, yeah, the employment rate, the total employment, it doesn't include hours, and there's an issue, I think, particularly about people who might want to work more, who can't work as much as they'd like to. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think the, um, the, there's an issue around the gig economy and insecurity of work, which those don't take into account. I, I, I do think, though, in, in re I think those that increase of, uh, you know, of, of overall employment, though, is, a, is, 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 is reality. And, you know, I think um, that is something which is a, a real phenomenon in the data. I think, you know, you do have to be careful about, uh, about the hours that I mentioned as well. And Maybelline market is not quite as strong because of, the, of some of the hours thing. But I think overall, like in Britain and the U.S., the labor market has actually bounced back quite well, at least in terms of quantities, where it's weaker is in terms of uh, wages. Um, on productivity, yeah, loads of problems of measuring productivity, especially in a service-based economy. Um, 
the, the example of the public sector is a particularly challenging thing to measure. There have been some improvements. So the Atkinson Commission, for example, has you know, tried to uh, make improvements in the way we measure public sector productivity to look at outputs, not just uh, inputs. So you know, lives saved in hospitals and other kinds of, other kinds of measures. Um, but you know, I, you know, we all have to recognize that output is very hard to measure. I think that I disagree with what many people say, which is that you can explain all the slowdown of productivity by just measurement problems. So we've always had measurement problems of, of uh, productivity in some sense. So you know, when we when we switched from horses to cars, um, you know, that productivity change was not fully reflected. For, you know, the, the 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 disturbance of having piles of manure in the streets <laughs> was not you know fully reflected in the price index. So I think we've always mismeasured output. Um, the degree to which that mismeasurement can explain this productivity slowdown, I think, is I, I don't think uh, we can fully explain it that way. So I think though some part is measurement, I don't think most of it is. And finally, I, mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I think there is a lot of wasted M&A. I think when we think about competition, what we want to, what we want to do is kind of reduce barriers to entry. That was the thing I was saying about the risk of when you get power, you can build up moats to stop other firms coming in. And certainly when we think about the criteria we use to allow M&A as regulators, I think we have to take, be tougher on that. So I think in terms of thinking about um, the ability of, say, the digital monopolist to take over startups, we do need, as I mentioned, to think about future competition and not just the current level of competition. But you know, competition is a very wide thing. There's many ways in which you could use to try and improve it compared to where we are now, not least of which to kind of reduce barriers to entry to being open by to trade. Okay, we one in the back upstairs. Very uh, deep talk and extremely entertaining um, exposition. The, the public policy interventions that you suggest are very hard. They're very hard to get right. Uh, investing in human capital, it's very difficult. Reducing, um, you know, improving policy, it's all very tough. The response, therefore, seems to be right now, which is to let technology run its course, deliver whatever it does in terms of income distributions and outcomes, but then tax these big companies massively um, and then you know, use that to perhaps generate a minimum wage or a standard of living for everybody who's left behind by the technological innovations that we see. Do you have any comments or reflections on that? Yes, I mean, you know, the, I, the, the, the bullet I had on human capital, of course, there's a lot of complexities and difficulties over, over doing that. But I think, you know, we've learned a lot about uh, different types of interventions which can be successful. So, you know, Steve Machen, for example, as the director of CP, has, has worked a lot on looking at uh, the types of uh, autonomy you can give to schools which can work in some circumstances and don't work so well in other circumstances. There's a lot of evidence that better resources work. There's a lot of evidence of uh, different... Um, types of teaching like phonics. There's very good evidence that preschool interventions can be very, very effective. Um, early, early years that, you know, the work of James Heckman and other people have done. Um, I'm, you know, the management interventions that I mentioned, that's another form of training which I think can also be successful. So I, I think that, that we do have a lot of abilities to actually do things in the system to change. So I, don't, you know, I certainly do think we also need a kind of redistribution that you, you discussed. Um, we certainly do need to kind of do tax and also welfare support. Um, but I don't think uh, you know, we, we want to just rely on that. I think not least of which 
is that um, this is what I think pre-distribution is really about. It's about if you can equip people with the skills to earn high wages, this is in the long run much better than just, re just redistributing money towards them because it, you know, people uh, you know, get uh, happiness and satisfaction from having a work and a wage attached to that. So I think the problem with welfare is it often doesn't fit well with what people want psychologically and also encounter a political resistance. Just as one final thing, you know, in terms of taxing companies, well, the fact is for multinationals, we actually don't tax them very much. Most multinationals, uh, you know, the tax rates have uh, gone down on a lot of large firms, and part of that is because uh, they're able to uh, move where they say they take their profits into low-tax jurisdictions. So I think there is a, another important policy agenda, uh, which is a kind of has to be a global policy agenda, which is how we think about properly taxing companies. I mean, as, you know, as the OECD have said, a good way to start would be to think about um, the criteria used for taxing companies, which should be, in my view, based on where they sell their products, which you can measure much better than where they claim they make their, their profits. Thank you for the talk. Um, I had two questions. Firstly, you talked about the um, productivity, re re reduction in productivity reduction in productivity versus the tech uh, technology that's coming in. Um, what's your view on if the productivity is, is reducing and tech is increasing, surely the tech will eventually take over the human side, the human aspect of it if, if the productivity continues to reduce? And my second question is, in the change that's happening with the tech coming in, um, with, um, the, do you, do you, what's your view on the education and currently in preparing um, our current young, younger generation coming into the new technology? Uh, it's a different world than where we were educated in. And how, how do you see that moving forward in terms of education? Thank, thank you very much. Um, it, so, it, I mean, there is this kind of paradox in a way. So when we think about, you know, robots and other new technologies, um, people are both worried that they're going to be really productive and take away all our jobs, and that they're not productive enough, and that's why we don't see the productivity numbers. So, you know, if, if they really were as successful, they would have a much bigger job you know, destruction element than they do. So you know, there is a kind of paradox of, well, you know, you either should be worried about productivity or worried about jobs and not, not, not about both. Uh, what I'm trying to argue is that um, the history of technology is that it always has this, uh, you know, this Janus-faced aspect to it. So on the one hand, if you just did what you were doing before, jobs go down through you know, replacing workers. But there are these, all these offsetting effects um, you know, what I call the Uber effects, the Walmart effects, business to business, and new tasks, which you know, historically have managed to keep, uh, you know, keep the number of jobs or keep the unemployment rates you know, more or less stable. Um, now, of course, there's periods where bad things happen, but over the long run, the economy has managed to keep people in, in work. So I'm kind of optimistic about that aspect. What, I, what I'm more worried about is how we, you know, are we going to deliver the right types of jobs and the quality of jobs and the wages that people need in order to have a decent standard of living, um, especially for the less skilled part of the, the population. 
comes to your second question. So, you know, I, you know, apart from the continued general expansion of education, I, I do think we need to think about a couple of things. So one is, um, given the, the way that the economy is changing and that new occupations are coming, we need to kind of equip people with general skills. You know, I think training people to, in, a too, in a too kind of narrow way won't, does not necessarily equip them with the fact they may be working in different types of jobs and different, different, different types of occupations. So I think having a good general education is really, really important. So getting the kind of basics, the basic skills right, but also, and this is my second point, having some degree of what we, we kind of almost pejoratively call soft skills, which is kind of communication, interpersonal skills, writing and speaking, those are actually the skills which are, are harder to automate away. And as I showed you, actually, the, the, many of the growing occupations actually combine those two together. So some combination of having technical skills, but also with having communication skills, emotional skills, which, you know, uh, robots are, are not quite so good at. Gentleman here with the uh, headphones. Thank you. Congratulations for the presentation. It was very provocative. Actually, I have uh, two standpoints that I'd like to ask you to, uh, to briefly elaborate. Uh, I used to live in a country that uh, uh, had, uh, in the beginning of next, last year, 11 million of unemployed. But if we consider the informal jobs, this number reached over 30%. And uh, I wonder uh, what would be the impact, especially with this polarization on this, uh, on this population that has a sort of uh, informal jobs. And the second thing is one of the, the, the phenomena that we have seen related to human capital is the workforce change. Not only we deal with, uh, with formal employees, but also we have to deal with vendors, with uh, sort of uh, gig employees, with contractors, and also with uh, uh, communities. And uh, this uh, workforce, they represent a remarkable challenge for the, the management. The management you pointed out as one of the, 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 the things that we need to improve to deal with this uh, uh, impact. So I, I would like to hear from you about these two points. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, I mean, what, one of, as you, as you say, one of the phenomena which has gone hand in hand with these technologies is I think whether you want to call the informal sector or the gig economy of people having atypical work, not having the traditional single employer, but having multiple employers, that's clearly a, a trend that we see. The, 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 the numbers in it, I'd say in the UK and the US, are not as great. You know, it's a lot of, there's a, a little bit more heat than light in this. So if you actually look at the numbers of people employed or the hours of people employed, it's not... Uh, Increased by as much as uh, as, you, as you might think, but it's, it is definitely on, on the increase, and I, and I think it does raise a lot of you know public policy questions. So you know, if people are moving between different jobs, then we need to think of having um, labour standards uh, which don't just apply to the kind of traditional model of people in kind of full-time single-employer jobs, but also having labour standards which are going to give some degree of protection to people also in these informal jobs or in the gig economy. And we have to you know, reimagine some of the, um, the, the laws and regulations that we, we, we have for that. And we also need to think on the benefits side how people can have more portable benefits. 
So I think in the UK, we've, we're actually uh, ahead of the game in many ways to many other countries like the US. So I think the health system here, for example, is a good example in the US. You know, one of the terrifying things about you know, losing your job is losing your health insurance. And if you lose your health insurance, you, know, you, you, know, you risk very high bills, you know, eye-wateringly high bills for many, many treatments because most people's um, health insurance comes through their place of work. So the good thing about, say, a system like the NHS is that you have effectively portable benefits because you're protected even you know, what job you're in. There's other places in between. But you know, you could all, you know, you'd also think about uh, portable benefits in terms of pension rights and other kinds of savings vehicles. So I think we do need to think about making it easier for workers to, when they move between these different types of jobs, to have both protection and also the portability of those benefits. Those are the kind of two things I think we need to think harder about delivering. Back in the centre. Abby Adeniran, LSC alumni 1986. Professor, Hav, uh, thank you for a very thought-provoking and enlightening talk. I have two questions. If you were to advise an 18-year-old as to what three jobs would be most demanded in about 10 years' time, what would they be? <laughs> My second question is that much of your research and data is focused on Europe and North America. If you were to consider Asia and Africa, and look at where Europe and North America is now in terms of productivity, jobs, technology, and so on. How far behind would you say Asia and Africa are? I mean, are they five years behind, 10 years behind, 20 years behind in where we are at the moment? Thank you. <laughs> well, two very easy questions. <laughs> um, yeah, the three new jobs in 10 years' time. Well, I, th I think this was attributed to Karl Marx. I don't think he ever said this. He said, uh, do not ask me to write the music of the future, because if I'd written the music of the future, it would already be written. Uh, now, you can see that as a mistake in historical context, because <laughs> what Lenin and other people did in the, in the Soviet Union may not have been uh, the best application of Marxism. I mean, I, you know, I, it, it's very hard. I mean, I, as I show you, know, those 10 new jobs I showed you, who would have known? You know, 10 years ago, those would be popular jobs. Uh, I, I would say, you know, if I broadly, you know, where, where do I see employment growing? I'd say number one would be in healthcare. So there's going to be a growth in all aspects of healthcare due to demographics, technology, and just the fact that you, know, you get richer. You know, there's only a certain amount of stuff you can eat and spend your money in. You want to kind of spend your money in health. So healthcare is a great sector to be in. I would say that you, know, you want to avoid things like probably radiography, which are being replaced by, um, you know, by artificial intelligence. You want to think about the more high, the higher skilled complex end of it, but also you know, nurses are also an area which is important. So certainly healthcare. Um, Education, there's a twin. So some people think all oh, our jobs will disappear. You know, they'll just be, you know, you'll be able to download YouTube videos of our lectures and that will be it. I, I, I think that's probably not right, actually. I think that there is still a kind of value to this kind of, these kind of face-to-face -face interactions that we have, uh, I hope. <laughs> the future of my job. Uh, so I, I, do, I, you know, I think the broad level of education, it may be delivered in very different ways. So we might spend a lot more time actually making uh, computer and video contracts, flip classrooms, changing the way we deliver this. But the kind of delivery 
uh, and content of education is, I think, going to be a major thing, especially when people, people have the kind of lifelong learning aspect that we have in the future. I guess the third thing would be in kind of research and development. So I think, you know, there will be a continued investment in research and development, especially around clean technologies, green technologies. That would be another, another good area. So those are my three, my three kind of jobs for the future. Uh, Asia and Africa, it's, again, it's hard to generalize because you know, they're both you know, they're hugely heterogeneous kind of areas. Um, I think you know, the, the, the story of my lifetime has been China. I mean, China has had this extraordinary growth period, and no one would have been predicting that, I think, 30 years ago. Uh, so clearly, it's possible for countries to catch up very significantly. China would be a leading example of, of this. Um, I think that um, one of the big bottlenecks um, is going to come around in certain institutions. So I think that in terms of um, when you start, I mean, there's a period of growth you can get as you catch up to the frontier, which can be through diffusion and you know, copying and adaptation. But at some point you hit the period where you have to start innovating. China has realized this, it's trying to do that. Innovating is much harder than diffusion. You know, innovating, you pushing the frontier is much, much, much tougher. And the institutions you need are often very different. You need to be able to have finance for more radical investment. You need to have a more open and creative environment to, to knock around ideas. So I, I, you know, one of the concerns is with when you get to the frontier, how can you manage to carry on innovating like, say, the US did or Germany did when they overtook the UK? So I think that's the kind of challenge. And then, of course, there's the challenge of actually even getting anywhere near the frontier. And there's very deep problems in many countries with the rule of law and infrastructure and so on. So I think it's very heterogeneous. I think, I think there is an optimistic story, though, which is that, you know, look at China, look at India. There's been major reductions of uh, poverty and inequality amongst people in the world, mainly, you know, mainly because of China and India. So I think that's the, the optimistic story that is certainly possible um, if, you, you know, if, you, if you make make the right kind of choices. Okay, maybe let's have two more questions. Um, we have the lady over there. Um, I think the gentleman down here said uh, his hand up. So we'll take those two questions and uh, then we'll let John wrap up. Um, okay, I have a very quick question. Well, not that quick, but um, you touch on quick, the uh, technology and its impact on the quality of jobs, uh, quality and desirability of jobs. So if you could expand on that, um, and if you have done any research on the impact on health, so what's, what's the correlation between um, the increase in technology and how is that changing the desirability of jobs and the quality of jobs and what's the correlation with health or health issues on employees? Thank you. Um, thinking about people who lost their jobs in the 1980s in, in industries in the north of England, many of those people never got in back into work. Um, why didn't your more optimistic model reach them? Was that a skills issue that you've mentioned? Was it geography? Would you like to say something about why those people never found um, the positive spin-off that you're talking about? Uh, well, yeah, great, great questions. Um, you know, I think, I think, I think we all actually underestimated, you know, especially economists. 
the difficulties that uh, many people had, you know, the north of England or the Rust Belt in, in the US, um, Eastern, Eastern Europe, Eastern Germany, um, that, you know, the, the kind of economic models that we use assume that kind of people relocate and they move. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the pie expands and people kind of move to take advantage of the new opportunities. But I think one of the lessons has been that although people do move, that happens very slowly, uh, often through generations, like the young people might move, or, or not at all. And you know, I think that's true in many of the, the areas that you, you talked about. Um, I think, obviously, the older you get, the harder it gets to move. So that's one of the stories, you know, the kind of uh, you know, coal miners in, in Wales, a lot of them who lost their jobs in, the, in their 50s, and you know, it's very unlikely they're going to move. I, I do think, though, that the fact we underestimated that means that as I mentioned briefly, we have to think of place-based policies. We can't just assume there will be this, you know, Norman Tebber on your bike type of attitude. And that we have to just, you know, face up to the fact you need to have serious investment in those left-behind left areas in order to try and you know, reinvigorate them. And that's easy to say but hard to do. But there are lots of examples of where that has been successful. So, you know, there's this thing called regional selective assistance, which is actually is investments, investment subsidies into disadvantaged areas. You know, I've shown that that's actually a very effective way. That requires serious money, requires political will, but it can be done if it's done in a good way. So I think those types of policies are the things which are kind of necessary. The mobility kind of helps, but it's not sufficient. We need to actually have direct investment in the kind of left-behind communities. To, I mean, the redistribution helps, but I think you need more than that. You actually need to wake up to the fact that you know, many people just don't want to move, you know, they, and so therefore they, those communities need support. Them. On the quality of jobs um, that, that you asked about, you know, I, I kind of focused on, you know, as a typical economist, on the wage element of that. So the thing which worries me is what's happened to wage inequality um, and slow wage growth at the bottom end of the distribution in the middle. So by the quality of jobs, I was kind of mainly thinking about that, the fact that for well-educated workers, wages have done very well, but for the middle and the bottom group of workers, wages have been much worse. Um, but the broader things on health, I mean, you know, the U.S. Uh, has these very worrying trends. That Angus Deaton, um, who's you know, just launched this inequality review that I'm involved with and Tim Besley is involved with, on uh, deaths of despair. So one of the startling facts in the U.S. is if you look at kind of you know middle-aged white men, the mortality has kind of fallen over the last 10 years. And you know, if you look at what, why that is, it's suicides, opioid epidemic, um, other, other kinds of health-related things. The UK looked like it's, it was being spurred, that opioid epidemic, but in the, some evidence in the last couple of years, we're also seeing that as well. So I think that part of what's happening, obviously the opioid epidemic, part of that supply side and what's happening with the US healthcare system, but part of that is demand side. Part of that is the fact that you know, many are less educated, um, you know, white men and women um, lost their jobs, like we talked about in the last question, and, you know, that led them into despairing situations, which actually has led into, uh, you know, mortality, problems of mortality and uh, worse mobility. So I do think that are, those are very serious things to worry about. So I hope that if we can think of some of these policies which can help address the, um, the worsening position of people in the middle and the bottom of the skill distribution, education distribution, that will help you know, uh, at least inoculate us to some extent about, against those bad trends which have been, uh, been happening in the US.
Okay, thank you very much, uh, John.